You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 27th of March 2022 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme, my guests are Emily Isohau and Christoph Munger. They're both here, but I've got Emily around the desk. What's that caught your eye today? Um, as always these days, NATO and Ukraine in the Nordic countries, a big uh, conversation topic. So I've got the latest on the timeline of possible accession to the NATO by Finland and Sweden. Very good. We're talking probably a little bit about uh, our trip through Helsinki as well. Also, Céline Leger uh, will be joining us with a roundup, of course, with the upcoming Oscar ceremony. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will be bringing us the view from Mallorca. And we'll have Zeit Magazine's Christoph Amant. He'll be talking to us from Berlin a bit later. Plus, we'll be joined by our Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be bringing you the latest news from Japan. It's the 27th of March, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Good morning from a very, very sunny, beautiful Zurich uh, this morning. I think it's going to get up to about 20 degrees today. Absolutely lovely. Uh, wonderful guests around the table. Andrew Tuck also joining us uh, from Palma this morning. Uh, Emily, I'll start with you. Good morning. Uh, all well? You're away? All well. Uh, one can't complain with weather like this. Of course, reading the news uh, in the world uh, puts in a gloomier mood, but the weather helps. Very good. Uh, also, Christoph Wung is here from the Tagus Anzager newspaper. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Uh, maybe let's uh, just start. Uh, of course, we have all of the papers uh, out this morning. We're going to be going up to Berlin to talk to Zeit Magazine's uh, Christoph Amen shortly. But I wanted to maybe just start with you in terms of news gathering. We're one sure. month into this uh, conflict. Uh, and what it means for a foreign editor like you running the foreign desk, how you have your team, your correspondents uh, mobilized at the moment. Uh, quite good at the moment. There are three persons uh, of us, uh, three colleagues, are within Ukraine. We have somebody in Moscow. Of course, we we have our cooperation with Süddeutsche Zeitung, but there are people of of our from our side within Ukraine. Uh, the colleague in in Moscow is about to work under very difficult con- conditions. I cannot go into details right now here in public, but it's we, we have to be very careful there. I think it's great that she is about to stay there and she tries to do. Her, her job, but it's difficult. Within Ukraine, they are moving eastwards. They are now uh, around uh, Lviv. Um, we have been on the first day of the war. We have, be, we have, we have been within Kiev, and, and the colleague then, after a couple of days, drove westwards with the first refugees and uh, brought back some very impressive uh, reports. That's one side. And second, uh, from, from, from Zurich, from, 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 the, uh, from our team here in Zurich, we, we've been doing um, interviews with experts. When la- last week I talked to Mary Alice Cerotti, the very uh, known uh, American uh, uh, historian who wrote about the NATO enlargement, a very important book that came out very <laughs> timely last, last November. Uh, I've Talk to Ivan Krastev, uh, who gave us a great interview. So that helps to 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 go to go to go backwards a step just from this this flow of, of news we get from social media, 
from Twitter. There, there's great st stuff out there, but you have to be very careful. So that's the, that's the second part. And so the, the, the third part is that we really try to, to establish some sort of common sense, what's going on there. But we have always to admit that we cannot uh, check those, those, those news, of course. Um, I want to uh, jump down to uh, Palma uh, right now uh, as well. That's Palma Mallorca because our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is there. Of course, he is also, um, I can't hear any hammering, but I think he is also constructing our new Palma Bureau uh, as well. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. Yeah, I, I did actually come this time to finish off a, a story, um, which I think it was, it plays into the news, actually. I came here to do a story about people who are, who are making things and running businesses here in Mallorca. But um, as I'm sure we'll pick up today, that you see the consequences of what's going on in the world. It's, it's incredible to see that the hikes in raw materials for everybody who's like furniture makers and designers really being pummeled by them. And there are some shortages down the supply chain here in Mallorca that are impacting supermarkets and food distribution. So it's funny how the, the reverberations from Ukraine and from the, the oil price hike is being felt everywhere this morning, I think. And any any sense when uh, you look out from where you are, when you glance towards uh, the harbor of Palma uh, de Mallorca, this should be a time right now. And of course, the, the super yachts uh, are, are being dusted down. They're being painted. They're being refitted. Uh, do you say maybe some larger ones with not much action around them uh, because they're going to be staying in harbor uh, for a few months? Well, they did have uh, they've had one or two incidents here of boats being checked for, for ownership. But I think at this point, most of the, the boats had already kind of head, headed east out, out of uh, Mallorca. You're right. Many of the, the big boats come here to be uh, uh, cleaned up you know, and prepped during, during the winter. But they have all they, the, the, the ones that are here seem all safe and sound. The bigger issue is that there's an agreement with the, the city government here to limit the number of these huge cruise ships that come into the port every day and uh, the, the deal was you would never have more than two of them on any one day and this week there was certainly a day when there were three of these really you know they, they looked like skyscrapers tilted on their sides three vast ships in port and again it's 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 a cause of concern for people here on the island because they fear that these people they come into town they they maybe buy a coke and an ice cream at the best of times and then they're back on the boat so there's there's a bit of a, t a tussle between the local government here the port authorities the hoteliers about whether it's a good idea to see such big ships filling up the, the port this morning Andrew, maybe just um, give us a little bit of a preview. Of course, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're there because uh, you have a pad uh, on the island, but also uh, you're there, as you said, uh, we can, and I can vouch for it, you're there on assignment as well. Uh, you're working on a story. What's the nature of it? Well, it's about people who have ma who've managed to continue making things here and who have come back to Mallorca to try and regenerate some of the traditional industry. So, if you think about the shoe industries, back back in the 1990s even, there were many companies here who had you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, employees making shoes for all the, the, the best brands in the world. Now, I met this week with a, a, a Mallorquin woman who came back from Berlin because she wants to make shoes here. You know, she's found a, a tiny factory up in the mountains, which I went to visit with her. But, you know, there's half a dozen people left making shoes there. 
we went to an amazing fabric uh, factory on Friday afternoon. The same thing, maybe half a dozen people working there. And, and the guy who runs it is, you know, he's, he's 78, he's, he's super skilled, he's, he's running the job, the, the job really well. But none of these places have young people coming into the businesses. So there's a, a concern about training. But on the other side, we saw a lighting company, we saw a, a well-known concrete company here who are on the other end of the scale. They've managed to find international partnerships. They're using, using every tool of PR and, and to get their name out there and are being very successful. So there's, there's some hope, but you just see the, the complexity of trying to reignite a manufacturing culture in an island where it has been allowed to kind of dwindle away in the name of tourism. And then you get to this point where tourism is is suddenly seen as a bit of a, a, a bogeyman and people are concerned about the impact on the environment, the numbers of people coming through here. So it's a really a, a bit of a gritty crunch point. So, of course, beautiful products that will end up on page in Monocle. But it's quite a tough story here about what happens if you let go of your manufacturing and end up being a service economy. And we're going to um, do a spin around uh, the table, of course, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be chatting to you um, about the papers and what uh, what we can look at today. But just before we go, is there a sense in Mallorca um, on, let's say, the part of the government, local government, um, that this is there is a crisis in, in manufacturing, in craftsmanship? Um, and how, do you have any sort of sense of, of course, any measures that are being taken, any programs to, to re-stimulate things? Well, they, they have some good colleges here. There are three design colleges uh, in Palma and producing good students. But the truth is these people need to get out in the world to get some experience and, and come back here. All the people I spoke to, they had a, a program here two years ago called, uh, three years ago now, Made in Mallorca, which was a celebration backed by government money of people who were doing production here. But the trouble is it all seems very sporadic so that you have a change in city government or a change of focus. So now they have a thing called Loop, which is trying to encourage people to be sustainable, think about their products in, you know, as in, in, in a more holistic way, which is great. But I think that many of the people here have, have ended up having to do things themselves. And, you know, I spoke to a woman on Friday who said, you know, I, I don't want to be, be tough on this, but she said, you know, we just don't get the backing from government. They talk a good talk about this. But every now and then you, you go to City Hall and you speak to people and say, this is what needs to be done. And they're too focused on the tourism issue, on, on, the, on the, the bigger quick wins, that they, they don't get the kind of support that they need. So in the end, what's happening is, it is it's individuals fighting against the odds, doing grassroots things who are kind of turning around the situation. Andrew, let's uh, do a survey of what's uh, in the papers today. Uh, Emily, I'm going to uh, start uh, with you. What has uh, caught your eye? Um, yeah, either in the, the Swiss press, international press, Finnish press. Uh, let's. Uh, where, where do you want to uh, commence? Uh, let's head a bit north, um, since you've just returned from the region, and, and um, look at I would, what I would call shifting uh, political tectonic plates in the Nordic countries, um, be it on NATO membership or so, uh, for instance, on, on green transition when it comes to energy policy. Um, so in Finland, for instance, if you look at, um, again, green policies, even uh, the parties and the likes of Trufins have come out to say um, that Finland should get rid of fossil fuels and transition into more greener economy. But really, the biggest shift has been when it comes to uh, NATO, NATO membership, both in Sweden and in Finland. And, and just um, this week, most recently, um, the polls say 54% of Finns are in favor of NATO membership, only 21% against it, and the rest still undecided. So the key question for me 
um, as someone observing the Nordic countries um, from Switzerland is when would this happen and is it really inevitable? So I would say, one, it is becoming more and more inevitable that the two countries join NATO given the public shift um, when it comes to opinion. Uh, but when is really the tricky question and I see two options there. One rather immediate and a, a second one a bit more long term. Um, so starting with the mid to long term, it's Sweden. Um, they have parliamentary elections coming in September. The centre-right bloc that's now in um, opposition, they've come out to say that they would uh, absolutely support um, Sweden joining NATO. Um, so if there's a shift in administration in Stockholm, um, looking at the latter half of this year, we might start um, uh, things changing. And of course, if Sweden were to join NATO, Finland would most likely try to bandwagon um, at the same time. But the more immediate one, um, and this is something that's being discussed in the Finnish press um, this week, is the timeline for Finland. Um, and all parties, with the exception of one, have come out to say um, that they um, would very much um, be okay with Finland joining NATO, even if they don't um, kind of adamantly support it. And um, the timeline is as follows. Um, the government is uh, updating their foreign policy document in the next couple of months. And then in May and June, um, the government, together with the president, is meant to already decide on potential um, application. And if that were to happen, some of the most optimists, um, if you're in favor of membership um, timelines, is that already at the Madrid-NATO summit at the end of June, a decision could be made um, to accept this application, which would then start the formal process, which might take two years even. And it's it's remarkable to see how this is playing out at, at such speed. As I was saying, we had our, our event, um, well, we had a series of events across the Nordics for our book launch this week. But at the event on Friday evening in Helsinki, mm -hmm. we had all of the, the uh, ambassadors from the Nordic region there. And it was interesting listening to, let's say, not the Finns, but uh, speaking to the Norwegians, speaking to, uh, to the Swedes, saying how they felt it was incredibly raw right now in Finland, that sense of also looking back at history um, and history very much repeating itself in one sense, how Finns felt uh, when they were invaded. The same type of, of, of cries for international help at that time, how the country was, of course, very much left adrift. Um, and and say there and just say you know it's interesting from from an observational point of view that you know there's this real sort of sense of yeah really feeling sort of un, under threat and 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 where Finland could be could be left and I'm wondering personally as a Finn. How you feel about that? No, absolutely. Just to your point, uh, a lot of parallels being drawn between, say, the Winter War and then what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, so, absolutely, I, I do see those parallels, and and I, um, from kind of my perspective, where I would draw um, attention is to also the solution side of things. So, if we look at Ukraine at the moment, if we look at Finland um, 50, 60 years ago, what were the ways to get out of the crisis? It's to make extremely tough concessions, which have implications on on neutrality which have implications on uh, military policies, but also territory. And I think this will be the very tough nut to crack when we look at Ukraine. It's an uncomfortable reality to face. Um, and I think there's a lot of sympathy in Finland um, if you talk to the general public. Uh, Christopher, I want to ask you, because we were just talking before the, the program about the notion of neutrality and also what this means that here we are standing in uh, in Switzerland uh, and, and obviously a lot of discussions about is, you know, from a, a foreign ministry point of view, from the, the position of the federal council, is the this country stepping out of its lane a little bit? Not just a little bit. I mean, we don't see uh, s uh, such uh, shifts as te tectonic they are uh, in Finland or in Sweden. But of course, uh, right now, Switzerland is, uh, 
is struggling uh, to find a new definition of neutrality. And uh, uh, we've seen that uh, last Saturday, a week ago, uh, when uh, there was this uh, uh, manifestation on, on Bundesplatz in, in, in Bern and in, in, in the heart of Swiss politics and Swiss Foreign, foreign Minister uh, Ignatius Gassis went on the stage and he talked to uh, President uh, Zelensky and told my friend Volodymyr and uh, there was no protocol <laughs> involved anymore. I was there together with my two daughters uh, we, we, within all these thousands of people and it, it was impressive and it, it's, it's some, he went really out of the way uh, to, to, to 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 make a signal of solidarity towards Ukraine, but of course he got lots of critics from, in particular from the the right wing parties in in Switzerland. They say there are even uh, some members of them are very fond of uh, of Vladimir Putin still, and and so uh, he got a lot of critics. But uh, Switzerland is trying to find a new new form of neutrality, and uh, I guess it, it's they are, they can keep uh, they can keep neutral, but it, it is humanitarian questions are involved. I mean, the, the Americans, uh, President Biden said in, in his State of the Union speech a couple of uh, days ago that even Switzerland has now joined the sanctions and now uh, Bill Clinton, the former president, came out in, in, a, in a program uh, when he uh, talked about the late Madeleine Albright. He said uh, also Switzerland is now uh, has fallen in line. Who have thought that? And so so the Americans see, see it in a way that Switzerland has given up neutrality. I don't agree there, but they are they, they are about to to look for a new version of it. Mm. Let's say uh, you touched on President Biden. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, a little bit the about face that's uh, had to happen on on the part of uh, the White House comms team. Andrew, I want to talk to you. I mean, this is dominating the front front pages. Looking at the Times uh, this morning as well. Of course, uh, you know this interpretation of calling for regime change and then this massive pedal back um, at the White House uh, as well. What does that uh, What does that suggest to you when you see that type of communication coming out off the back of what was what was said well i think you know, that you know, biden seems to have uh, found some energy and focus from this issue and and you know he was playing you know, the, the tough cop and he definitely let's say misspoke because calling for anything that sounds like regime change just means that other leaders in other nations begin to kind of be wary of what your plan is there's a very simple focus here, which is the, the protection of the the integrity and the borders of Ukraine, defending the, the, the country's right to defend itself, as it were. But once you start talking about regime change in Moscow, and even though afterwards they said that it's definitely not what he was saying, he was just saying that how could a person like this be allowed to run a country? It still was an unwise thing to say, and it and it also rallies people in Russia more and more behind Putin. Once you think they think that there's some legitimacy to the suggestion that the Americans and NATO want to interfere in what's happening internally in Russia, then it's a, it's it's a terribly unwise thing to say. But you know, at least he had he had some strength in in the rest of his speech, and he he had some some focus about what he wanted to say. But this. This this bellicose element to him it didn't go down well and it's and, and you're right everyone's got to now get back to a position where they can actually focus on what the topic is. Emily, how did you uh, read this? 
Um, there's actually been some interesting analysis that actually wasn't a slip, that it was intentional slip, um, kind of disguised as such. But no, I, I would very much agree with Andrew's assessment that it wasn't a wise decision. So when you, for instance, look at the concept of sanctions and how they imposed, um, there, for instance, some research to suggest that they only work when you look at the domestic context, say in Russia, um, if there is this push from both sides. So they're international sanctions, and then you need a viable, kind of a free opposition within that country that can use the hardship um, induced by sanctions to their political um, benefit. But that's not the case in Russia. And if that's the context, research suggests that the sanctions actually work against um, any opposition and in favor of the ruling government, because they can argue um, um, that the international community is after us and, and, and Biden's comments would only fuel fire um, uh, to these types of allegations by Moscow. Christoph, deliberate uh, slip uh, disguised as something else. Uh, how, how did you see it? Uh, I rather see it as a typical uh, Biden <laughs> explanation. He, he tends to to talk spontaneously sometimes, and I, I got this impression. Anyway, I mean, everybody knows that uh, the U.S. cannot uh, make a regime change uh, within Moscow. That's much. That's much too big. Uh, and so, uh, if if you if you take it for real, I think it's 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 not. Uh, it's not a threat, but he talked uh, some sort of a truth. I mean, I cannot imagine European uh, politicians, uh, American presidents to sit at the same table with Vladimir Putin. Again, uh, of course, we don't know. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes politicians tend to be flexible, but I, I think he, he said some sort of, of a truth. But I, I really agree with, with Andrew when he said he, he that doesn't help the whole thing because uh, the, the support for Putin within Russia uh, has has become bigger after that, I'm sure. It's uh, just gone 10.24 here in Zurich. It's time to uh, swing the spotlight uh, to the West Coast uh, now and talk about all things related uh, to the Oscars. I'm very happy to say that uh, Solène Leger is here, a uh, film producer, also friends of the family. Bonjour, nice to see you. Hi, Tyler. How are you? Very good. Um, Solène, uh, maybe let's, uh, let's yeah, kick off. Uh, and I think that we're in a moment right now where... You can see the Oscars are very much in the the shadow, of course, geopolitics, everything else. Uh, there's a bit of a, a kickstart is, is, of course, needed after this period we've been in. Maybe just from an industry point of view, your your assessment, how do you see the Oscars uh, as, as a brand right now? No, no, you're totally right. So, yeah, it's been in the shadow of the whole conflict. So just to tell you about one point, the question that everyone is asking right now in L.A. is, uh, does Zelensky will have an opportunity to speak or not tonight? So uh, Sean Penn is, uh, is uh, asking everyone to uh, to ban uh, the Oscar to just uh, uh, if Zelensky has no opportunity to speak. So right now, the last info we have is that is uh, in discussion with the Academy and in my have uh, in, in might have a video tonight of him talking to the Oscars. So that's that's a big question. Uh, industry speaking, it's a big change today. So uh, in fact, it will be maybe the first night that a streamer will want this picture because right now the two favorite uh, movies are uh, a Netflix one, uh, The Power of the Dog, and the second one is Apple, it's Coda. So it might be a first first time. So the big thing that came out uh, from that pandemic is that streamers that can have now their movie at the Oscars. So that's a big thing. Uh, just going back to having Zelensky potentially on stage some link uh, this evening, is part of the problem with the Oscar brand that it's just become too politicized. Now, you could always say that, that there is a component of film, which, you know, that is that is part of why we love film. That's why we like going to the cinema. But that too much of it is actually just not about 
the performance, the industry, but it's everyone's side interests or principal interests. Uh, and this is why people are a little bit fatigued as well. You're totally right. So this is why last year it was a lot of politics. It was the, f the worst, worst audience ever at the Oscars. So the the director of the Oscars said this year we need, we need of course, half-half, uh, not too much sta statement. They want an a big entertaining show. So of course, Beyonce will be there, uh, Billie Eilish. So we will have a lot of big, big shows. Uh, but uh, this is why also, you know, they want, they, they want to make it short. So you have, um, you, you know, for technical categories, it will not be streamed. So it will be pre-recorded. So they want to make the ceremony, ceremony shorter, uh, not, not too long speech. So to make to keep it entertaining and they want audience of course so because last year was the worst audience speaking so yeah they say half half not too much statements now just tell me so that you've, you've touched on on two films from the the streamers but uh from your position as a as a producer uh who do you want to see of course uh receive their statues uh whether best actor best actress also film as well Okay, so film first. So Coda, which is the Apple TV film, uh, it's a French, it's an American remake of a French film uh, from 2014 called La Famille Bélier, and the story is very interesting. It's uh, it's about the only hearing person in a deaf family, so it's a it's a drama but a comedy. So a lot of French people are involved in that film. So I, I guess I have to support it. Uh, and I mean, actors speaking after 30 years of winning nothing, even if he, I mean, he was part of so many amazing film. Will Smith is finally the, favor the favorite contender for Oscar for Best Actor uh, with the film King Richard, which is uh, the story of uh, the dad of Venus and Serena Williams. So Will Smith, Will Smith might win tonight. Um, and when we look at, and now you, you know, just of course, you, you had to, of course, uh, reference uh, France's involvement uh, in, uh, of course, inspiring uh, Coda. But uh, when we look at foreign films and also potentials for anything um, out, out of Europe uh, and elsewhere, not including French cinema, um, what, what are your bets? Yeah, I mean, the, the big bets uh, will be, I mean, Coda, you know, it's it's the first time that Coda is uh, is actually uh, nominated for foreign film and 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 uh, best picture. So Coda is, I mean, it's it's so many nominations. So Coda is the is the one that might win, but uh, that might win. Sorry, but uh, I think uh, Jane Campion, you know, since I mean, she she might win tonight also. She, she will be she will be she will be the best director for sure. And in terms of status, and I'm just maybe from an industry side, you're a producer. How important it, you know, is it when you're out raising finance uh, that this is still the pinnacle um, when you're trying to bring investors into film? You know, is it is it driven by what's going to happen tonight when you're out pitching? Or listen, if I'm yeah a family office, want to invest, I just want to see what the returns are going to be at the box office with or without an Oscar. No, no, you're totally right. Very good question. For indie film, which are the French very much involved, you know, it, it, you were talking about family office and private money, um, Tribeca and Sundance, for example, Sundance won best film in Coda. Sundance, it's an amazing market for European film trying to access uh, American American markets. So I will say Sundance, that is a first step. Uh, and of course, the Oscars will bring you, I mean, the amazing window that you need to just go global. 
Very good. Céline Léger, our, our film correspondent. Uh, I'm sure we'll be probably catching up uh, with you a little bit, uh, well, maybe tomorrow, uh, for an assessment of, of what we saw. It's uh, just gone uh, 10.30 here in Zurich. News time in London with Emma Nelson. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The White House has insisted that the US President Joe Biden wasn't calling for regime change when he said Vladimir Putin cannot stay in power. The Kremlin's dismissed the remark made during a speech in Poland, saying it's up to Russians to choose their own leader. The German newspapers Die Welt and Bild am Sonntag are reporting that the Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his government are considering setting up a missile protection shield over the entire country. Similar to Israel's Iron Dome, it would be stretched across the nation to protect from any Russian missile. The European Union foreign policy chief Josep Borrell has said that a deal to revive the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran could be reached within days. Talks have been taking place in Vienna for nearly a year. And visitors to the Italian city of Venice have been issued with water pistols to fend off violent seagulls. The large birds have been giving hoteliers trouble for years, stealing food and attacking tourists. Guests at the Monaco and Grand Canal Hotel will be handed a bright orange water pistol to send them packing. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, how do you feel about that? This is going to, of course, prompt another news story about, of course, with animal rights activists that you shouldn't be um, drilling poor seagulls, pigeons, whatever they may be, with uh, with water pistols. That, had, that actually hadn't crossed my mind. I was more interested in whether you'd get other sort of... Well, look, you're having a lovely, beautiful, beautiful drink outside on a terrazza in, in, in Venice, and suddenly you get a stray water pistol in the back of your neck. I'm more worried about guests and, and the beautiful buildings yeah, you're, as well. you're concerned seag- about punch-ups, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, actually consi- I'm actually quite worried about well, punch-ups and having my drink diluted by the contents of a water pistol. I mean, that's a real worry. It is. is. Emma, thanks for that. Uh, We're going to cross uh, to Berlin uh, right now because it's uh, 10.32 here in Zurich, same time up in Berlin. I'm very happy to say that Christoph Amend is there, editorial director at Zeit magazine. Guten Morgen, Christoph. Good morning, sir. I'm, just, I'm thinking about my water pistols because I'll be I'll be heading to Venice uh, for Biennale at the end of April. So packing my water pistols to go over there. Very good. Well, I was in Berlin just for about two hours yesterday. Um, came in from Helsinki, headed back. I didn't didn't see you um, out in the out in the shops uh, shopping for them. Um, but maybe just give us the view uh, from Berlin. Of course, we were uh, you know picking up just off the back of the news there. This notion of, of course, um, the, the the Bundeswehr, the Chancellor, uh, looking at at an Iron Dome. Uh, Germany, of course, you know, you know, obviously over the last month, very much in the news as a, as a position of, of, of as a staging position, of course, uh, to dealing with the conflict in the Ukraine, but also this notion of of of, of a Germany which is which is standing up on the world stage, um, and and of course a Germany which is looking more forceful, which also has sort of taken people uh, probably a little bit, you know, uh, yeah, they they thought a little bit on the back foot in many ways. But um, from your position, Christoph, maybe just um, your take and whether it's Zeit Magazine's take or Christoph's take or the, or the newspaper's take on this. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Chancellor Scholz has used uh, uh, the, the term Zeitenwende, uh, the turning point of history in his uh, speech in the Bundestag a couple of weeks ago. And I think um, many Germans feel that way. I mean, you know, for decades, uh, the foreign policy of the country was uh, because of its history, um, not to be, uh, you know, sort of really active player, and now these things are changing. I mean, uh, Germany is investing a hundred billion euros uh, to its army, uh, the Bundeswehr, um, and there is a majority of Germans, if you look at the polls, supporting that um, new strategy, uh, which 
I think a, a large part of the population, you know, four or five weeks ago, wouldn't have thought they would think themselves about this uh, this way. Uh, let's maybe uh, start with uh, this week's edition um, of, of the magazine. There's a couple of topics that we want to cover, but we have a very poppy-looking uh, cover. Um, it's, it's in sort of cartoon format. It says Hapschmatz, uh, and then you have uh, a lot of, uh, of course, the action language of, of cartoons around. And in typical Zeit magazine style, you have a second cover um, uh, you know, behind, uh, and then you have these sort of surprised eyes, smoke coming out of the ears, and it says Schwitz. Uh, yeah, and and it's 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 an it's an issue. Ein, ein Heft über Schaffes Essen, an, an issue devoted to hot food. <laughs> yeah, it's a spicy issue. So we we dedicated the the uh, food issue um, this spring to 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 spice. And um, my my favorite story is actually um, a, a conversation by our China correspondent who went to Sichuan uh, to talk to uh, one of the the leading chefs, um, Lan Gu Jun. Um, he's an expert in 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 spicy food in Sichuan, pepper and. Um, well, his message is basically that he believes that in 10 to 15 years, the whole world will be uh, eating Sichuan pepper um, because, it, as he says, he, it feels like it's so exciting. It feels like clubbing and drinking. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's really it's, it's fantastic to, to learn. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I've been... I've been, you know, uh, enjoying hot pot restaurants in Berlin. You know, a woman who knows more about these things told me, showed me a, a, a fantastic hot pot restaurant um, a couple of months ago, and since then I'm, I'm a bit of a Sichuan pepper junkie myself. No, and there's such a celebration uh, of, of course, of, of amazing dishes um, through, throughout this, and then and the wonderful uh, photography of, uh, of Carmen Palma um, throughout. Any, um, any favorites? Of course, you, you do start off, of course, with. Um, with this wonderful scene, um, and you have some wurst uh, with some some green leaves, of course, uh, some half-consumed beer on the table um, as well. But can you point our listeners into any any top dishes uh, that you're featuring? Well, there's you know there's a large variety. Of course, as a German magazine, we we we, we have bratwurst, we have sausage, but we we now have, have Thai curry and and fish, and it's it's a large large selection of different. Um, recipes um, uh, all about spice, all about spicy food, and um, yeah, we'll be. Um, we actually, I mean, we're, we're actually producing a Wochenmarkt uh, magazine just sent to the printer a couple of days ago, which will be and will be out in uh, later this spring. Let's uh, talk about. Uh, we'll, we'll probably discuss Wochenmarkt in a, in a few weeks uh, when it is actually on on uh, newsstand uh, across Germany and, of course, uh, even here in Zurich as well. But uh, the other title, which is out, of course, is uh, your your brother title to the to the, uh, of course, the core Zeit magazine, and that, of course, is Zeit magazine Mann, uh, and with a with a TC Boyle uh, cover. Maybe just discuss uh, a little bit. Um, yeah, there's there's an interesting composition uh with tc boyle and uh, and maybe why he um, ended up being cover star well i i, I had a, a conversation last year with him uh, sort of uh, on zoom live uh, streamed live on site online um and at the end of the conversation we kind of agreed that the next time we we would meet we have to, we would have to meet in person so i i got in touch with him a couple of weeks ago and he and you know if he would be you know willing to to uh, to welcome us in his house in santa barbara in california 
And he said, yeah, you know, I just finished my new book uh, two days ago. So I have some free time and come over. And um, then we went there. Um, you know, he lives in this amazing Frank Lloyd Wright building, a prairie house um, made out of redwood, built in the, you know, I think 1909. And the, the original wood is still there. And it, it's an incredible house. It has, I think, over 170 windows. So you're basically looking out to nature from every point of the, the house. And we were sitting uh, on his wooden terrace, uh, listening to the owls and uh, talking about his life and uh, and his work and his his novels and well you know the, the, there was one point if um, during our conversation when he said I've I've made three major mistakes in my life well the first one was that I thought literature is important second one I thought that I was important and the third one is I thought that anything in the world would would mean something. But apart that, apart from that, everything is fine. <laughs> uh, and just uh, maybe if we can maybe flip a few more pages uh, forward or back from that, uh, anything else that stands stands out for you? And also, what did you what did you want um, your team to deliver, Christoph, um, with Zeit Magazine this issue? Yeah, of course, given the times that we're in, I think this is, you know, you would know as an editorial director as much as I do, um, people can be very, you know, prickly coming back, you know, coming off the back of, of, of a pandemic. Uh, we're in the middle of a conflict and how much how much you have to sort of balance escapism. That's why some, you know, this is, Zeit Magazine is not setting itself out to, you know, be a, a, a geopolitical journal. You can touch on that if you want. Um, but how do you strike the, the right balance? Well, uh, you know, generally speaking, I would think you would, as a magazine, you would, ha you, you know, you need to find the right balance between, you know, covering what's happening in the world and reflecting um, on, on the, you know, the, this, these, these crises in which we live in. And uh, on the other hand, you know, give people different stories, give different perspectives, um, because I think people are both, uh, you know, staring at the news and trying to escape from the news at the same time so you know like with the magazine this this week we just talked about the food issue um but we also have a new weekly column from a illustrator uh, who lives in kiev an ukrainian uh, uh, artist sergey maidukov um so when the war started a couple of days later i i was in touch i got in touch with him and uh, did a cover story with him about his life and about the situation because he's drawing about you know what he sees at the moment in Kiev, and then we decided one um, one um, one illustration by him every week. And so since then, I've been in touch with him every day for the last four weeks. Uh, he he was just celebrating his birthday uh, last night, and because there's a curfew in Kiev. His friends visit him in his flat, and they had an apple pie, and, and you know, try to find some some moments of peace. Christoph Abend, uh, editorial director at uh, Zeit Magazine in Berlin. I'm always very good to speak to you. It's uh, just 10:41 uh, here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break. We're back after this. It's Monocle's 15th anniversary, so come and celebrate with us in San Moritz, high up in the Swiss Alps. Join Tyler Brule, Andrew Tuck, our editors, and me, Georgina Godwin, from the 1st to the 3rd of April for a special weekend of talks, walks, drinks and dancing. 
You'll also meet celebrated Dutch writer Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, author of the bestseller Grand Hotel Europa. We'll debate the future of the continent with the author and discuss the state of the media with our editors at St. Moritz's own Grand Hotel, Sivretta House. We'll dance until late at the Dracula Club, sample the best of Engadine hospitality and host a live edition of Monocle on Sunday. And they'll be skiing on offer too, as well as a special spring preview of our latest collaborations from our pop-up shop at Super Mountain Market. We'd love you to come to our high-altitude spring weekender, though places are strictly limited, so sign up soon through the events section of our website. See you in San Moritz at the Monocle Weekender. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Boulay. Also, Christoph Munger is here from the Tagus Anzeiger. Uh, also, our regular guest, uh, Emily Isahau. We are going to Tokyo, though, right now. Uh, our Fiona Wilson uh, is standing by, our senior Asia editor. Uh, also, our bureau chief, uh, Fiona, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi, Tyler. Now, are you, uh, do you have a view of the Sakura some, down some wonderful boulevard uh, wherever we've uh, caught you uh, this afternoon? Yeah, I mean, you're lucky I'm not kind of a few sheets to the wind at the moment because it is peak blossom today. I think it actually officially peaked in Tokyo. So I'm actually at my desk at home, but I have an incredible cherry tree right outside my window. So I feel like a a haiku might be coming on. I might have to compose a poem. Does it feel a little bit uh, different this year? Because, of course, uh, I I recall last year when we were probably discussing Sakura season that uh, a lot of places, of course, were were closed off. The the traditional uh, areas that, of course, people would, uh, of course, go and sit beneath uh, the uh, the cherry blossoms. uh, Yeah, they were, of course, uh, warding people away, etc. Different tone this year? You know, sadly, not that much. I mean, you know, you will remember what it was like. It used to be that people would sit out all hours, well into the night, drinking, laughing, talking. That's not happening this year. I mean, Yoyogi Park, very close to the the Tokyo Bureau of Monocle, they're they're not allowing picnics this year. Set your selfies slightly at a distance, but... um, yeah, they're not picnicking. And I think I, I feel this will be the last year this happens. Um, I think next year, <laughs> famous last words, but I feel next year it will be back to uh, to uh, business as usual. But no, this year still a rather subdued Hanami season. Well, let's talk about fam- famous last words and uh, what is what's what is happening in, in Japan um, at the moment? Because, of course, we have many corners of the world completely uh, reopened. We've heard you know, the Japanese government, they're upping the number of business visitors who can come in every day. A um, bit of a mi- few mixed messages, of course, in terms of how long those quarantine times are, what countries are on the watch list which you know which countries aren't but uh from your from the office window uh from your mini commute uh, any any sense are you noticing uh that uh, people are now coming back into the country yeah I, I do i do notice i mean one of the big priorities was um there were there like 150 and the priority was to get those people in it's really important you know to get the academic exchange going uh, so i've noticed a few more people i wouldn't say that many but there is a feeling that it's just a gradual reopening. I don't think what you've seen in Japan is just this, you know, it's closed one day, open the next. But you do feel that it's moving towards opening. Numbers are pretty good. Uh, booster numbers are going up. So, you know, I think it's all moving in the right direction. Um, and just speaking of a uh, direction and uh, and maybe uh, certainly trips that were westward, of course, we had uh, Prime Minister uh, Kishida, of course, has been to Brussels uh, this week, uh, of course, there alongside the, the other G7 uh, leaders. 
Fiona, how important was it? Uh, of course, you know this was it was you know, principally it was a NATO jamboree. Of course, Japan not being a member of, of NATO, but it's Japan is of course a uh, a neighbor of Russia's um, as, as well. How did that visit um, and and certainly a very prominent one play out? Uh, if I was would have been flipping on NHK or TV Asahi or looking at the Yamiuri Shimbun. Well, I mean, you know, it's incredibly important for Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. You know, he's a former foreign minister, very long serving foreign minister. He's playing quite a different diplomatic game, I would say, Shinzo Abe. But he was very, very keen that Japan is in these talks in Brussels, the only representative of Asia. And, you know, it was very high profile. And he's been really kind of enthusiastic He wants to be in there with the G7 allies and with NATO. He's inviting Biden to come to Japan next month. Um, You know, I think he wants Japan really to be really at the heart of all these conversations. I think traditionally people thought Japan was often funding projects. It wasn't really, you know, at the centre of uh, diplomatic moves. And and you've seen, you know, Kishida has been putting in some tough sanctions, you know, encouraging uh, refugees, even, you know, unheard of in Japan, encouraging Ukrainian refugees to come to Japan. And, you know, aid has been uh, flying in the other direction towards Ukraine. So it's a much more uh, proactive diplomatic policy. And I think that is going down very well in Japan. Fiona, let's just shift to um, business stories. Uh, there's, uh, of course, uh, you know, and maybe this is uh, slightly foreshadowing the sense that tourists are going to be returning to Japan, hopefully by by summer in in some numbers. You've been chronicling, of course, a number of things. Uh, you know, retail retail doesn't stop, uh, and that is very much uh, a theme, which is uh, which is part of our, our April issue with a bit of a retail survey. Lots of great stuff going on in Japan, um, and and something rather remarkable, which. Uh, uh, literally, yeah, you, you've stumbled across uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, the format of a, a rather uh, aggressive shoe concept. Yeah, I mean, I just thought, oh, you know, it's a sign that things are waking up, that retail is still it's so important, obviously, in Tokyo. And yeah, I think you're right about welcoming people back. So Hankyu Men's Department Store, big department store in, in Ginza, which you know well. Uh, used to have the Monocle Cafe there, of course, and it's a department store dedicated to men's clothes. And the entire eighth floor has become um, completely devoted to trainers. Um, And, you know, it's quite a dramatic concept. But the idea is that you can just buy every kind of trainer you're thinking of, but also you can get old trainers cleaned. There's a museum there exhibiting trainers. You can learn how to jazz up your trainers, the very idea. Um, But if you want to stick a load of crystals on your trainers, um, they teach you how to do it. So it's a full trainer concept. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's had a lot of play in the media. It's very, very interesting to people here. Okay, so that paints a picture. Obviously, you've been to Tokyo Hands. You're going to be applying crystals uh, on your own to your trainers. Uh, I can see I can see a whole sort of family project this evening. One thing I was interested in, though, was the uh, the idea of just cleaning up a, a, a pair of trainers. I mean, I'm I'm terrible. I just fling mine in the washing machine and wonder why they don't look quite so good afterwards. But um, you know what they'll do there is they'll they'll give them uh, various grades of, uh, of of care. You know, so for I, I I'm not remotely fussy about trainers, but for people who love their trainers to be perfect, you know, they will they will restore them to life. Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief uh, in Tokyo. Very good uh, to speak to you, uh, as always. Uh, just coming up to uh, 10 minutes to the top of the hour uh, here in uh, Zurich. Time for maybe a few more stories. Also going to be checking in again with Andrew because we want to talk about our upcoming event uh, next weekend in Sam Maritz, uh, the first Monocle weekender uh, in a while. But uh, Emily, maybe uh, something else uh, out of uh, the Swiss papers or are we going uh, to the other side of the Baltic? What do you have for us? Yeah, maybe something lighter uh, at the end of the program. Um, no, since many 
many of us lost an hour of sleep last night um, at the toast of uh, us who aren't the biggest fans of daylight savings. Just to note that there is an EU-wide proposal to get rid of this um, two-time um, uh, policy that we have at the moment. Um, so back already in 2018, the EU Commission proposed to remove the two times and each member state would get to decide if they go with winter or summertime. And this was approved by the EU Parliament already in the spring of 2021. But given the EU bureaucracy, it still needs to be approved by the Council of Europe. And because of COVID, this hasn't um, taken place. But now it's the time for member states to decide which um, time they would go with. And Finland, apparently in the beginning, was favoring winter time back in 2019. But there's now a citizens initiative for Finland to adopt summertime instead. And I, I still haven't made up my own mind which way to go. I'm voting, I'm voting for summertime. I, I, want, I want the longer, the longer days uh, at, at this time of year, for sure. Christoph, uh, do you want to do you want to vote on that? No, I would vote on wintertime because I, I'm happy if it's getting dark once in, in a while in the <laughs> evening and, and you have finished your day. So uh, I would be fine with wintertime. But anyway, I, I don't care too much. <laughs> I'm fine with both of them. Tell us, you, you just um, had a sit down. You had an interview um, with the American author and, uh, and journalist, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Viner. I'm just, uh, or Tim yeah. Viner. Um, uh, just, uh, yeah, how that came about and, uh, and what uh, was the, the topic of the text and discussion. I mean, we talked at the, at, the, um, at the very beginning of the war, we talked about intelligence, the US intelligence warfare. And uh, now he has a, a notepad in the Washington Post on March 25th. Uh, and he talks about the essential reading uh, about uh, this question. He has actually a book out about that uh, maybe a year ago. And uh, he, I asked him, why do the Americans know so well about everything the Russians do, about every move? And uh, he said it's a very, very successful uh, operation of, of uh, intelligence warfare that they made public everything and everything basically came out as, as true. And uh, so I asked him how do they get the, the information and he, he explained to me that the NATO has a new basically the Americans have a new spy plane called Artemis and they don't have to fly within the, the Russian airspace but they can really can hear and see uh, almost everything in, in Ukraine and that's very helpful of course so they, 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 they saw the build up of the Russian armed forces and today they uh, they can of course support the uh, Ukraine field commanders and came they in real time they can give them very important and essential information about the, the Russian positions uh, but still uh, the interesting part said he he speculated that the the uh, US intelligence service might have a, a, a source very deep within Cameron. Of course, that's a speculation, but he's just said it's very amazing how much they know about Vladimir Putin. Mm. Uh, just uh, maybe uh, Solène is uh, back around uh, the table uh, as well. Uh, anything uh, anything out of France uh, you, you want to share, maybe even outside of the film world? Yeah, no, no. I mean, uh, right now it's all about election in two weeks but uh, fun news is that we know because I know that Andrew is a big fan of Eurovision so now we know who is the French contender it's a very weird gothic uh, female trio that is going to sing in Brittany language so uh no chance to win for sure this year. It's, no. a, it's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. 
Yeah, you would think that maybe they want to sort of capitalize a little bit uh, mm-hmm. on, on, on the French moment. Uh, and Andrew, are you already tapping your toes uh, in Palma, listening to uh, something uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Breton? What would the, the dialect be? Breton? 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 Yeah, yeah. Andrew, yes, no? Well the, well, the sad thing is, if you're British, you've kind of almost lost interest at this point because we're we're so kind of outside of the the, the, the winning circle these days. We always know we're going to come in roughly about last, and post Brexit, there's no chance of garnering any votes. So, if we if we sang it in in in, in the local language of Brittany, or if we sang it in Welsh, it would make no difference. I think we're going to come last again, probably. Mm-hmm. Andrew, just uh, maybe we should uh, spend a few minutes. So you will be uh, on uh, this side of the channel. <laughs> You'll be at the heart of the continent. Uh, this time next week, we'll be uh, taking this show live uh, up to up to Samaritz. Uh, Georgina Godwin is going to be with us. Uh, we are going to have uh, the off- author, uh, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer, uh, is going to, of course, be talking about uh, and, and yeah, his first big English language session because his book, Grand Hotel Europa, has just come out in English. Um, and there'll be a big discussion about the state of Europe um, and very much uh, you know, this is something which, of course, is, is contemplated and is, and is a theme throughout uh, this book. Uh, what are you looking forward to, aside from your tobogganing, uh, which probably won't happen? You'll be happy to hear there's probably not enough enough snow on the toboggan runs. Uh, but what, what are you looking forward to out of uh, next weekend? Well, it's the same thing, Tyler. You know, you know, this is an amazing opportunity for our, our listeners, our readers to convene again. And we're all used to kind of probably being back into you know, real life spaces and uh, conferences and debates. But it's still funny how many people have not really ventured out yet. So I encourage people who, who want to have a bit more of a debate about what's going on in the world you know, face to face. And we have proper good Chatham House rules. People can say whatever they want. They can they can air their views. Yeah, and it's a, a an, an amazing atmosphere where people are just genuinely open about their concerns and what they want to see happen. So I think it's going to be fun. There's always a, a chance to let rip a bit, a few glasses of wine. But it's, it's just this notion of coming together with a, a group of people. And there's just something about mountain air and being surrounded by the mountains to make you feel that you're both connected and disconnected, that you, you have a, a moment there in the, in the gap in the clouds to kind of really think about things. And I want to just pick up on, on a point you made and just uh, in bringing Emily here, which was when we did this tour across Copenhagen, Oslo, Stockholm, Helsinki this week, uh, and we did a story a little while back about uh, this, about freedom of speech, how the city of Lillehammer, uh, of course, a former host city for the Olympics, you know, they, they want to, the mayor wants to position this place as a place of true multilateralism, a place that you can go and say anything you want because you should be allowed. And this is, of course, something which a liberal democracy, uh, a wealth and, and, a, and a rather wealthy democracy uh, like Norway wants wants to, uh, of course, push forward. But it, it was a theme that came up in, as sort of Andrew said, everywhere we spoke to our readers this week, everyone said, it's so amazing that you can come together in this environment. Uh, and you you feel that there is this move now to let's re, let's probably recorrect this move to safe spaces and, you know, that someone might come in and say something shocking. And there seems to be a bit of yeah, almost an ongoing dialogue. And I thought it was just interesting being in the Nordic region mm. um, that uh, there's a sort of pushback to maybe something we've been feeling is coming from the other side of the Atlantic. And I don't know from your view, because you're in a world of, of mediation, um, what, what your take is and, and whether there is a, a bit of a currency now uh, moving, moving maybe towards getting back to center and true discussion uh, and and maybe how that's going to play out. 
Um, no, absolutely. And I think you need to create these spaces, I think, both in, in a bit of secrecy, in confidential settings where people can test ideas, test the waters. And that's essentially the idea of peace talks as well and why confidentiality is so important, that you need to b have enough confidence um, to put X, Y and Z out on the table and, and see which one sticks before you commit public to, publicly to one or, or the other. Um, so absolutely. But of course, society-wise as well in the Nordic countries, uh, one is always extremely proud of free press and, and, and the diversity of press. And, and in Finland recently, there have been discussions, again, on the role of the public broadcasting company, to what extent should they have uh, written articles versus um, audiovisual articles. Um, and, and it continues to be a debate. And interesting enough, um, I think the public is in on, on the side of the public broadcasting company trying to maintain a high level of, of professionalism when it comes to um, reporting also on that side. Um, Andrew Tuck, just back in Paul McCormick very quickly before we go uh, is the, um, the the reporting day finished for you that assignment's done uh, yeah the, the the writing up is kind of <laughs> looks a bit daunting I probably got a little bit carried away with, with the meeting with the number of people I was meeting yeah so I had I head back to London this afternoon and then as you said I'll be uh, heading up to uh, to uh, Zurich and then on to Samaritz on, on Thursday as well and I just got a quick point on that Tyler you know I hinted in my column this week that sometimes people don't agree with you on everything and I think that's the other funny thing is that sometimes nowadays people, when you say, look, I get your point of view, but it's not exactly mine, but hey, let's, we can coexist. I understand we have a difference of opinion. People almost don't like it. They want to just have this endless fight until you all agree on exactly the same thing. The world's not like that. There's lots of different competing views, lots of which have merit. And I think that's the, the fact that we come to when we come to these events in, with Monaco up in the Samritz and elsewhere. Perfect words to end on, Andrew Tuck and Paula. Also, Emily Isau, Christoph Munger, Solène Leger, and Emma Nelson. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Christoph Ahmed is also in Berlin. Fiona Wilson was in Tokyo. The show is produced by Desiree Bandley. And Steph Chung is back in London. I'm Tyler Burley. Have a good weekend.